Good morning. My name is Drew Rummel. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. Uh, I get to substitute for Pastor John once in a while, and he's been out of town this week. Uh, so I get the privilege of speaking with you this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can come together, Lord, that we can um, worship you openly, that we can study your word um, without fear of persecution, Lord, that we can come together and gather together to bring glory to your name. Lord, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would give us insight into your word, that we would understand it, that we would um, know you better, and that you would transform our lives. Bless these next minutes together, Lord, and uh, help us to honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was around 11 years old or so, we had a couple of girls who lived next door to us. Uh, one of the girls was a few years younger than I was, and the other a uh, few years older than I was. She must have been 14 or so. This one evening, we were all outside. We were playing some game or s something together, um, and I'm not exactly sure how it happened or at what point it happened. Um, however it was, I found myself engaging in a game of mercy with the older of the two girls. If you're not familiar with the game, I'll explain it to you quickly. Basically, you each stand in front of one another and you grip hands, kind of interlock them. And when you say go, you turn your wrists, you fight for the position over the other person to pull their arms up to stretch out their tendons, causing them severe pain, and you wait for one of them to say mercy and to give up. Well, I wasn't a very big kid growing up. I, um, at this point, I was maybe four and a half feet tall or so, 75 pounds, but I was pretty athletic. I wrestled with my friends, you know, most of them bigger than me, and I held my own pretty well. Um, my neighbor, she was probably four, maybe five inches taller than I was. She had a good 20, maybe 30 pounds on me. But regardless of the size difference, I was pretty confident that I could take her. I mean, I had two younger sisters, you know, and they were pretty easy to push around. Uh, I knew what girls brought to the table in regard to physical strength. I believed honestly that she was toast. Our siblings, some of the neighborhood kids, we gathered around, um, we locked hands, and we said, ready, get set, and that's when this really strange thing happened, you know. When we locked hands, she was a 14-year-old girl with a few pounds on me. But when we said go, she morphed into a gorilla. <laughs> I'm pretty sure she could have bent a tire iron with her hands. My world went red, my ears, you know, started ringing, my tendons were stretching, my bones were cracking. I relented to her beastly strength in the only way I knew how. I kicked her in the shin and I ran away. <laughs> Pride can be hazardous to our health. I was so confident in my abilities, so self-assured. And that's the context we have for our passage this morning. There were these super apostles going around Corinth and don't think Peter or Matthew or one of the 12 disciples. These were self-indulgent, self-promoting men. They were proclaiming their own greatness before the people. They were self-assured in their own abilities, just like I was in mine. To up their game, they would demean Paul. They would uh, 
make fun of his stature and the way that he spoke. They went so low as to reach back 20 years in Paul's ministry to a time where he was humiliated and was let out of a, out of a window in a basket. Let's read together our first portion of our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and he heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or what I say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. So Paul writes this chapter in response to the accusations made by these super apostles. And the Corinthians, they were buying into those super apostles' speech. They themselves were raising up these super apostles. The problem with approval by men is it doesn't necessitate approval by God. One biblical example that we can refer to to make this point comes from Numbers chapter 16, and it's known as Korah's rebellion. Korah was a high-level leader in the nation of Israel. They had just left Egypt out of captivity, out of slavery, and the people were tired of Moses, and Korah thought he could do better. He rose up in popularity. He was built up and actually supported by 250 well-known prominent leaders in Israel, and he had many followers. The problem is that he was a false prophet. He was approved by the people, sure, but he stood opposed to the one whom God had called. In the end, Korah, those 250 prominent leaders, and all of the followers were killed by fire from heaven. Our first takeaway from our text this morning is that we have to be careful of what, of what teachers we listen to. 1 John 4, 1 through 6 tells us, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Pride has serious consequences for us, and it always has casualties. In the story of Korah and his rebellion, it's pretty obvious those consequences. And it, and it wasn't just the false prophets that were killed, but everyone who built them up and followed them. We have a responsibility as listeners for every doctrine that we entertain. In the interest of saving these Corinthians who were being deceived in much the same way that people were deceived by Korah, 
Paul speaks up of an event of confirmation of his ministry, one he had kept secret for 14 years. In verse 1 of our text, Paul writes, although there is nothing to be gained, he genuinely believed that there was no benefit in advancing the gospel by telling of this experience. Yet, for the benefit of the Corinthians, that they would be encouraged and could have confidence in his ministry, that it was approved and directed by God, he writes the following account. Let's go back to verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. This word translated heaven in the Greek is oranos. It's the same word used for sky, space, and heaven in the Bible. The way we know which one is being referred to is based on context, which is why Paul tells us it's the third heaven. Just for uh, textual criticism, um, the first sky we find is in James 5.18, where he's talking about just the dwelling place of the birds. The second is the celestial heaven. We find that reference in Matthew 24.29. But this highest heaven, or this third heaven, this is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's generally what we think of when we think of going to heaven. The consensus among scholars is that this trip to the third heaven was given to Paul as personal confirmation, preparing him for the ministry that he would have, proving to him that he was chosen and called by God for the advancing of the gospel throughout the world. Let's continue back through verse 2. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. We don't know, we're not told. Not even Paul knew whether God had actually physically brought his body to heaven or had just given him a vision of heaven. He makes that point twice. We don't know. The point, though, is that for all Paul knew, he saw it. He was there. And we know that Paul was speaking about himself because of verse 6. Let me ask you, if you were taken to heaven, what would that do for your spiritual life? Every time you went to church to hear a pastor speak or you opened up the Bible, what would be your general attitude or disposition? What do you think was Paul's attitude when he went to meet with Peter or some of the other apostles? I'm not sure I could, or even the best of us, could help but being somewhat com conceited by this experience. Maybe not outwardly, but our attitudes would certainly reflect that. I mean, just go into a crowd and start talking about a great vacation you've taken. All of a sudden, the one-upmanship starts to begin. There's a number of interesting points in this section, especially the fact that Paul saw heaven. But worth noting is that, number one, it took Paul 14 years to even tell somebody else that this had happened. And number two, he blows it off as not even a big deal. He doesn't give us specifics. He doesn't tell us what he experienced, just that it happened. Why? How could he hold that in? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 7 through 10. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in insults and hardships, in persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is really where the meat of the passage is. This whole thing, this whole experience comes down to the purpose of God's plan for Paul's life. How was it that Paul kept himself from becoming conceited after this experience? From his own lips, he didn't. God wanted to give Paul an amazing gift of encouragement, so he took him to heaven to give him confirmation of his coming ministry. But to keep him from becoming too big for his britches, you know, God gave him another amazing gift, suffering. Do you feel the air kind of go out of the room? Suffering, an amazing gift. I think most of us can safely say that the worst thing that's ever happened to us have been times of suffering. I'm going to challenge that belief a little bit. The worst thing that can happen to you is eternal separation from God, to be thrown into hell. While suffering produces momentary discomfort and severe sometimes, Pride can destroy a ministry. Pride can destroy a marriage. It can destroy a family, a nation. And it's responsible for every single death since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. It was their pride that when they saw that the fruit was good for food and that it was advantageous that it would make them like God that they sinned. It was pride that entered into Satan when he was kicked out of heaven. Listen to his speech from Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 14. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. We see a divine irony between this passage in Isaiah and our passage in 2 Corinthians. That even though it's Satan's intention to be like God, we find out he's still just a tool of God's grace in the believer's life. Verse 7 specifically mentions Satan by name. That Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment him. But we don't have to fear him. He can't do anything outside of God's permission. We see this truth in this truth in Job 1 through 12, or 1 chapter 12. I'm sorry, Job chapter 1 verse 12. When God gave Satan permission to torment Job and saying, very well then, everything that he has, Job has, is in your power, Satan's power. But on the man himself, do not lift a finger. For the Christian, everything that happens to us is inside of God's will, and it is for a specific purpose. Romans 8, 28 assures us of this truth. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. There was an elderly widow. She, um, she just genuinely loved Jesus. She spoke of him to anyone who would listen. She was constantly singing praises out her window. And she had a neighbor who was an atheist, and he 
hated hearing her talk. He hated hearing the songs coming out of her window. It drove him crazy. Now, she was poor. She was out of groceries, so she prayed. She opened her windows, and she said, God, please provide for me. And as she prayed, she was certain that he would. She prayed for the list of groceries that she wanted. She was specific. Seeing his chance, her atheist neighbor took this opportunity to expose God for the fraud that he was. He went to the store, he bought all the groceries on her list, and he went and put it on her porch. He rang the doorbell and he went and hid around the corner. She answered the door and she started praising God. She got everything she'd asked for. He jumped around the corner and said, Aha! I bought those for you, not God. At which point, she praised him all the more. And she said, God, I knew that you would provide. I just didn't realize you'd make the devil pay for it. <laughs> I don't know that the devil's ever bought me groceries, but he's brought me grief. But in the assurance of Romans 8.28, we can be sure that whatever we're given, it can and will be used in the life of the believer for our good. That isn't to minimize your pain. In fact, our suffering is often severe. It's as much as we can handle. But we have this promise in Christ from Psalm 34:18 that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. We rarely see the purpose for our suffering while we're in the midst of it, but over time, as the picture gets further away, its purpose is revealed. The reason for Job's suffering, it wouldn't be seen by him. But how many of us have been encouraged by his story? The disciples couldn't understand Jesus' death and suffering on the cross. But we were all saved by it. How did Paul come to the conclusion that God uh, had used this suffering in his life for his good? Well, either God literally told him, um, or he'd been praying about it, and through reading scripture and seeing through experience the effect that this thorn had had on him in sustaining him and refining him, um, he saw how God had used this trial for his benefit. In either case, Paul grew to be grateful for this thorn, even though he might not have been pleased by its presence. I want to shift gears for just a second to address something. Anyone who ever tells you you're not being healed or that God's not answering your prayers because of sin in your life or because you don't have enough faith obviously hasn't read this text. I mean, this is Paul that's prayed, and he prayed three times that this would be delivered from him. This is the same Paul who was commissioned by God's audible voice. I can't say that I've ever heard God's audible voice. This is the same Paul who saw people healed and even raised a man from the dead in response to his prayers. This was not a sin issue for Paul. It wasn't a lack of faith issue for Paul. This was a providence of God issue. We certainly need to be aware of when we are in sin, when we need to repent. We need to trust God that he hears us, but we need to have the wisdom to know when God is using our experiences to refine or develop or even protect us. Verses 9 and 10. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the final point of Paul's defense. This is what separated his ministry from the false teachers. They boasted in themselves and in their approval by men. He boasted in Christ. This is why, for Paul's sake, the thorn in his flesh was given. It was to keep him from becoming conceited, verse 7, and to keep him on task, not relying on his own strength, but to keep Christ at the center of his life and ministry. Verse 10 says, When I'm weak, then I am strong. Do you know there's a real danger in being strong? We get complacent or we put ourselves in the place of God as the provider in our lives or in the lives of those around us. You know, the strength isn't like a physical strength, and it's not typically what we think of. It's a worldly strength. It's a, the things that the world looks at and approves of. Power, beauty, wealth, vitality, health, popularity. The weakness he speaks of are things this world considers weak. Injury, persecution, deficiency, pain, unpopularity, humility. In 1 Samuel 17, we find David, a 12 to 15-year-old boy up against a giant, and he was weak. But he believed, as verse 37 says of that text, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. There isn't any pride there, just a dependence on God to deliver him. In Exodus 4, Moses is appointed by God, called out to deliver the Israelites from the hand of the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh. He objects, not just because he's afraid, but because he's called to speak and he's a stammerer and a stutterer. But God uses him to do incredible miracles and to lead a whole people, millions of people, out of Egypt, out of captivity, and into a promised land. When these men were weak, they were strong. Conversely, in David's life, when he became old, um, he became strong in his own eyes and in the eyes of the world. He had an an entire army to fight his wars on his behalf. He could take what he wanted, and he stole another man's wife. And then he lied about it. And then he murdered the man to cover it up. Before Moses was called to deliver Israel out of Egypt, when he was still a prince of Egypt, one of the most powerful men in all of the world, he decided to make himself deliverer of the Hebrews. And once, when he saw a Hebrew man being abused by an Egyptian, he went himself and killed the Egyptian. It led to his exile. When we are full of ourselves, determined to make it by our own strength, there just isn't any room for the Holy Spirit in our lives. But when we empty ourselves of all the pride, Jesus fills us with his Spirit. In chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Do you know that's what you are? A jar of clay, a 
cracked pot. God has chosen to put his treasure, his spirit, in us. What can God do with a broken life emptied of pride? What can God do with your life? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's the answer. He gives us the kingdom of heaven. He gives us himself. So I want to ask you, does your suffering make you more like Jesus, or does it make you bitter against him? Does it turn your eyes upward in dependence or inward to self-pity and anger with God? At the end of time, there were billions of people scattered across the plain. At the end of the plain, there was a judgment throne where God would sit to judge the nations. Along the plain, there wasn't sorrow, what you'd expect. There was instead grumbling and anger and frustration. Over in one area, a small group had formed. Uh, each of the people in the group had experienced a similar type of suffering on earth. Far out across the plain, hundreds of these groups started to form. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and the suffering that he permitted in this world. How lucky was God to live in heaven where everything was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping, no fear, no hunger, no hatred? What did God know of all that people had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because they had suffered the most. A Jew, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic and a beaten slave. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other, at last ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born into a hated race. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult even his family will think he's out of his mind for trying to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. And then let him die. Let him die publicly so there can be no doubt that he died. And let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs were rising up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing his sentence, Jesus approached the judgment seat. There was a long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly, they all knew that God had suffered their sentence. Philippians 2, 7 through 8, tells us, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. 
It's remarkable to me when I sit down to think about what God has endured as opposed to what God deserves, it's really hard to comprehend his humility. There isn't any pride in him at all. Have you ever considered God in that light before? That there is zero, absolutely zero pride in Christ? You know, he's the only person ever who could choose where he would be born, when he would be born, to whom he would be born. He chose a dirty old stable. He chose the armpit of the world. He chose a young, poor virgin. He deserves everything. He made it all. It would be right if God just wiped us out or if he just left us alone to seep in our destruction. But not only does he use our suffering, he uses it for our highest good as an instrument to bring us to heaven, to eternal life. And beyond that, not only does he use it, he enters into it. The author of Hebrews tells us that it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should, be ma should make the pioneer of our salvation, Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Jesus is the perfect savior because Jesus suffered. We're praying for you this morning. We have a new Facebook group, Grace Praise. You heard about it this morning. We encourage you to join it. We want to hear. We want to pray for you. If you want something more private, we have an email, prayforme at gfol.org. Send us your emails. Call us. Approach us in person. If you need somebody to, to listen or to talk to, if you need somebody who can relate to your experiences, there's somebody in the church that can. If you need something more professional, we can refer you to a professional to help you work through your trials. We are Christ's church. We are his hands. We are his feet. So let's be that for one another. I'm third party to this, but um, the statement really made an impression on me. There was a man connected to some of our friends, um, and he recently spent some time in prison. He made an interesting statement. He said, being in prison is almost easier than being out of prison because in prison, everybody already knows you're a sinner. There's no facade. You wouldn't be in prison if you hadn't done something wrong. Not that I want our church to be a prison. But I do pray that our church can be that transparent. After all, we wouldn't be here this morning. We wouldn't be coming to church if we weren't already sinners. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Paul and his ministry. We're so grateful for this letter of 2 Corinthians. We're so grateful that you've assured us um, of your grace and that you've reminded us that uh, we're not alone in our suffering. We're not, um, and, and it's not without purpose, Lord, that you never waste suffering but you always use it for the good purpose of salvation. We pray that you would remind us of that, that you would help us to believe that, Lord, and if we don't believe that, that you would help us to seek your word to find out if that's true. Help us to trust you more. Help us to commit our, self, our suffering to you, commit our pride to you, to humble ourselves before you, that we would receive eternal life, that we would repent of our sin to receive you as Lord. Forgive us this morning, Lord help us to go in grace in Jesus' name.